I'm David Pluff. And I'm Steve Schmidt. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. In a few minutes, we're going to bring on two of the smartest and most experienced minds in politics that Steve and I have both had the pleasure of working with intensively, Matthew Dowd and Joel Benenson. We're going to talk about what the race looks like with just a few days left to go. We're recording this on Friday. We ran into some tech issues, familiar to all of you these days. So heads up, this episode was recorded on Zoom, and it'll sound a little different compared to our normal episodes. But Steve, before we uh, shoot the shit with Matthew and Joel, we're talking on Friday. We'll be releasing this Monday. Right before we got together here, Donald Trump announced his closing campaign schedule. 14 events. And what's interesting to me is some of the initial commentary was, wow, look at all the events he's doing. He's really hustling. It's like, first of all, if you look at the local media on these events he's doing, his coverage is disastrous, right? It's all about COVID cases on the rise, people saying these events are a bad idea. The visuals are horrible. To me, this is bad politics. Yet I think some people ascribe some special sauce to it, like somehow this is going to be a great way to close the campaign. So what do you think of that? I'm going to answer it like in a story. (laughs) A couple of years ago, I was in Istanbul and was hanging out on the Bosphorus Strait. It's an incredible place. It separates the continents of Europe and Asia. And there's an incredible amount of sea traffic that moves through this Bosphorus Strait. There was this one tanker, and I was just sitting there watching it. We were just having a drink. You could tell that tanker was going fast. (laughs) It was just, it was going faster than the other tankers. And like right across the way, there was a bar, and there were a bunch of boats tied up, and there were people on the dock. And you could tell that the wake that this boat was throwing off was like of a whole different dimension and you could see it coming. I remember watching the whole thing play out as this giant wave came and it sank four boats and (laughs) swept all these people off the dock. That's what I see coming. That's the only thing that I can compare it to. Like a, a wave coming. Like whomever turns out for these events is not a majority of the population is important to remember. It's crazy behavior. It's profoundly reckless behavior. I wish these people no ill. But it also must be said that you got to get your shit together. It's so completely fucking reckless. People are dying. Governor of Utah, where I am, just said we're out of hospital beds. We're now in an emergency situation that we have not previously been in. And everywhere Trump goes, the majority looks at this the way that I just said. Stop it. Steve, I think the wave you talked about is quite plausible. The thing that still concerns me is, are we going to have the election day turnout on the Democratic side that we need? No reason to think we won't. And the only way I think Trump could win is literally if he gets the best turnout we've ever seen on election day and the Democrats get the poorest. But I think beating him soundly is not enough. Obviously, him losing gets me excited. Him skulking off down to Mar-a-Lago in January makes me excited. But thinking about him, you know, being bankrupt, no one doing deals with him, he never gets invited to a Republican convention again. All these things get me excited. I saw the Lincoln Project has these billboards up in Times Square in New York, which clearly have gotten under the skins of not just Jared and Ivanka, their intended targets, but Donald Trump as well. So talk about how important that is to continue the fight 
against Trumpism and to hold these people accountable, not just to be assholes, but there's a purpose behind it. So first off, let's look at the Trump family. I mean, we've never seen a bigger group of grifters and crooks assembled under the roof of the White House in American history. They've just disgraced themselves. They've engorged themselves at the public trough. But let's look at Miles Taylor, who's been in the news revealed as anonymous. And he was on a Lincoln Project streaming cast that we do every night. And he was talking about the things that he did to mitigate Trump's excesses, right? And I said, well, let me ask you a question. Did anybody say when they wanted to cage the children, what? <laughs> That's an illegal order. That's an immoral order. Not going to do that. And his answer was his answer. So now we know he lied and CNN is going to keep him on air. And so there's a public discussion, right? Is lying in public like that is a matter of public character, a consequential act? Does it matter? I think it does. But what is the policy that everyone is trying to walk away from? The policy is the child separation policy. And he was deeply involved in the execution of that policy. What's the result of that policy? We have 565 children who have been orphaned by the actions of the federal government in the United States. And I'm outraged about it. And I'm outraged about it because that act was committed in my name and in your name and in our children's names is committed by us. And I want there to be a public accounting of everybody at every step of the way who is involved in implementing this immoral policy. And it is immoral. There are two deeply, deeply and profoundly immoral actions that have played out in this administration by deliberate, cold, calculating, lethal, bureaucratic design. This is what Hannah Arendt talked about when she coined the phrase, the banality of evil. Mm -hmm. The first one are the cold meetings with pastries and coffee in the West Wing of the White House, with charts and PowerPoints, deliberate decision that when these refugees, and that's what they are, they're refugees, there's a process under the law that allows admission into the United States, including under U.S. law, the right under U.S. law to present yourself at a U.S. border port of entry to petition for asylum. What happened when these moms and dads, when they saw someone in a uniform with an American flag on their shoulder, were they safe? They were victimized and they were traumatized. And there must be a full accounting and a reckoning. Rick Wilson, my colleague, has said that it's the American Wansi. And people won't <laughs> like that comparison. The Wansi was the meeting in Germany attended by mainly lawyers, but chaired by Heydrich, where the murder of Europe's Jews was planned. But the point of the meeting was to establish a legal framework around it. The most evil act 
was designed and implemented with lawyers and bureaucrats around a table over an opulent lunch. In the West Wing of the White House, on an ordinary day, Jared Kushner made the decision that there would be no national strategy because it was a blue state problem that they could pin on the governors. And so how do we measure the consequence of that? Germany is not more advanced than America. If we had the same mortality rate as did the Germans or Canadians, there'd be 160,000 more of us right. alive. Kids back at school everywhere, economy stronger. You know, the Jareds and the Ivankas and some of the senators up in 2022, they're all going to run for the hills if Trump goes down next week. Well, I gave him this private advice, or I was really opposed to that policy, and we just can't let that happen. I think you got to surround these people with the same kind Absolutely. of intensity. Absolutely. And to me, that is a permanent campaign, but it's what's required to make sure people pay the full price. And my guess is, you know, I'm sure you don't want to talk about the creative, but Jared and Ivanka seeing billboards at Heathrow or Frankfurt Airport talking about yeah. their embrace of child separation is going to make them pretty damn upset. And well, I can't wait for that moment. But it's also when you look at the professional liars that have been on TV misinforming the American people, a LinkedIn campaign communication to the top PR firms that our group certainly plans to engage your corporate clients and to hold them true to their values and to communicate to their employees. If you go and you hire into your company a senior Trump official who repeatedly lied to the country, we're going to be called out for it. Yeah. People are going to know about it and we'll see how markets respond. Well, you know? a lot of job openings at OAN and RT. That's going to be about what's available. Breitbart, Daily Caller, right. all great places, I Good hear. Good stuff. All right. Well, Steve, let's talk to our two guests. We're lucky to have today Matthew Dowd, who was George Bush's lead pollster and chief strategist in 2000 and 2004, somebody Steve worked closely with, and then Joel Benison, who played the role for, same role with Barack Obama in 8 and 12 and also was Hillary Clinton's chief pollster in 16. So we want to go deep into numbers with them, talk about the states, and not just talk about this election, but also what these trends mean for the future of our elections in American democracy and society. These are both absolutely brilliant guys. Matthew is a colleague for a long time, as was Joel with David. And on election night, I always have an eye on what Matthew's saying, even when I've been on set. You know, it's kind of my North Star on the numbers of believing what's real and true, but I can't wait to get into the discussion today. Hey, it's great to have you both, Matthew Dowd. Well, it's great to be here. Glad to be part of this. Joel Bennettson. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm really happy to do this. Should be a great conversation. So Matthew, you in 04, Joel, you in 12, were both deeply involved in re-election races. We're presidents who had zero margin for error. Okay, right. we sweated every decision, every ad, every line. <laughs> So I'm, now listen, Trump's his unique animal, right? Just talk to me a little bit. As I watch Trump, you know, not with a Democrat, just on someone who's tried to study every presidential race. They have a, an incumbent president who's got a tough economy, a, a pandemic raging, closing like this with no discernible message. There's a report out today, by the way, that I think 87% of the counties where Trump's done events has seen a surge in coronavirus, right? And if you look at the local media when Trump goes to a place, it's shitty. It's like, 
should he be doing these events? You know, and most people saying no. So just talk about like, you know, I don't know, man, like from a practitioner standpoint, your view of how he's closing this race and how it fits in historically. And let me add one thing on top of that. I mean, substantial evidence to suggest that everywhere he goes, he's putting downward pressure on his numbers because people don't like the super spreader events in the whole of the community. I think about Donald Trump like a coach that knows how to coach a football game in the snow, but every other game he doesn't know how to coach, right? And so Donald Trump won an election with his same playbook that he has, and it was a snow game. He's still running a playbook as if it's a snow game against the same opponent. He's basically doing similar exact things with a totally different opponent and a totally different environment. And in a re-election campaign, you can't make it a choice election if your job approval number is underwater. I knew in 2003 and 2004 that the most important number I looked at every day was George Bush's job approval number. And we had set up a convention whose primary goal was to increase George Bush's job approval number. Because my goal by election day was to have his job approval number at no less than 49% and somewhere between 49 and 51. It was never going to get higher than that. We did a bifurcated strategy in the last two months, which was pro-George Bush, re-elect him, he'll fight terrorism. He's the national security guy. And oh, by the way, negative on John Kerry. We finished on election day with a 50% job approval rating, and we got 50% of the vote on election day. I agree with so much of what Matthew said there. And here's a real contrast. Last 120 years, 19 presidents have sought re-election and only five have lost. There's a real advantage to incumbency. But Fluff, you remember this in 2012. We had to make sure with President Obama that we never overstated the economic progress that was percolating in the country. We were still in the throes of one of the worst recessions since the Depression. But we wanted to turn it into a forward-looking choice based on a contrast of economic vision and values. And that's how we ran against Romney. We wanted to make it about what's going forward. The challenge here is Trump's narcissism makes it impossible for him to use the reparative skills a president needs. But Trump doesn't have that skill. And so at a time when the pandemic is gripping the country and he's on videotape saying he downplayed it, it just shows him it's out of touch with where people are in their lives today. Instead, he's trying to make this a referendum on Biden. And he's just missing by a mile, in my view. Snow Game. That could be a good title for the movie of this era. It could be the first one could be Snow Job, the Donald Trump story. And then the sequel could be Snow Games, Donald Trump Jr. story. Snow Games. We're going to pause briefly to pay some bills, but stick around for more election analysis from Matt Dowd and Joel Benenson. Welcome back to Battlegrounds. All four of us get asked all the time, okay, look at these polls. How could Biden lose? I think the only thing at this point the Democrats should worry about is has all this early vote cannibalized their vote that would normally occur on election day? Because I think in many of these states, Biden's going to have a big lead in the early vote. And are we seeing a lot of new voters, which the data seems to show we are seeing a lot of new voters? even in the early vote, and how many of the normal Democratic votes won't show up on election day that already showed up. And I think that's the unknown, though I think we would have caught some of that in polls, especially national polls. So I think Donald Trump still has a path 
it's a, it's narrow isn't the right word. It's an ant trail path that he has to do. Is it possible? Yeah, but it depends on how much of the early vote for Democrats is already done and they don't have any more. He doesn't look like the most fleet-footed of guys for such a narrow trail. It's hard to construct a scenario. The one I can come up with is just election day turnout is awful for Democrats, okay? And Trump really overperforms. Joel, you saw that in 16, where the early vote in Florida looks so good for Hillary. Because obviously we see all the early vote and we know who's voting. So we have a you know, fairly sophisticated sense of what's going on there. But just using your history, what can we learn about turnout in these polls? There are two sides of enthusiasm. One is voting for your candidate and the other is voting against the candidate. I have not been troubled about the enthusiasm of Biden voters to go out and vote against Trump. So there's a lot of enthusiasm there. And I think what we shouldn't do is get carried away right now with the early vote numbers at all. We saw that happen back in 16. So I don't think polling is the best way to gauge what turnout's going to be. There's been a lot of talk about Latino numbers lately. Are they coming out? Are young African-Americans coming out? I think turnout is going to be one of the biggest variables on election night that we're going to be watching when we actually get to count votes, because I don't think anybody here has a clear sense of whose voters are going to be more motivated in these last few days to actually go to the polls and vote for those who haven't voted early. You sound pessimistic to me, Joel. No, I think, look, uh, Schmidt, I mean, uh, you know, I lived through 2016. Now, the one thing I would say that's really different about 2016 is that the polls weren't wrong. They were tightening up. If you look at the trend line in the last two weeks, Hillary Clinton's numbers were shrinking. If you look at Pennsylvania and Michigan, really key states in the Democratic lineup, those two in particular were just a downward line for us. And when your candidate's momentum is on a downward slope going into election day, you got to be prepared for bad news on election day. Let's talk about Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, because if Joe Biden wins those three states, it's game over for Donald Trump. He hasn't been able to expand the map anywhere. There's no state that Hillary won that looks like Trump can grab back. And right now, his polling leads there and the real clear politics average have actually held pretty steady. We're not seeing that kind of shrinkage that we saw last time. We're also not seeing it in the national polls, which were exactly right at the end of 2016. Everybody forgets it because Hillary lost in the Electoral College. But the final national average in real clear politics was 2.2. That's what she won by nationally. So well, go ahead, I, Matthew. I'll add to that. What happens a lot is the state polls usually don't capture the change fast enough because the way they poll and the way media polls didn't capture that shrinking lead that had basically been cut in half or more by three days before election day. But if you took the average of the state polls in the eight target states, Hillary Clinton, she was polling at 47 or 48 in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, Wisconsin. She got exactly what she was polling at. The problem for 2016 is there was a larger number of undecideds and there was a larger group of people that were parked in third party. And what happened in the final three days is the undecideds moved to Donald Trump and a part of the third party that had parked themselves there moved. And so Hillary Clinton's number didn't drop. Look at Joe Biden's number, 50, 51, or whatever it happens to be. Donald Trump could win every undecided in this thing and still not have enough in this race. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll keep chatting with Matthew Dowd and Joel Benenson. 
Welcome back to Battleground, our last episode before the momentous election of 2020. One thing I want to say that I think has not been talked about enough is the pushback on Donald Trump, I don't always think has been well done. If he had reasonably handled the pandemic right, this election would be fundamentally different. I think we're in a real perilous moment because there is a large part of the population of the country just says, whatever, get the job done for me and my family, and I don't care really fundamentally how you do it. And it's not just Donald Trump voters. There's a large segment of voters on the very left who basically say, I want this done, let's get it done in whatever means necessary. There's this idea that there's this whole segment of population in the country that is informed and bought off on democratic institutions and ideals and what the Constitution says and all of that. And I think every time people make an argument, the democratic institutions, valid and all of that, I think goes right past the whole group of people. No question that that's true. And I think that this is a really important thing because Trumpism is a status authoritarian ideology with fascistic markers that has rooted itself on American soil. It's taken root. True. And all over the world, we see the rescission of democracy. We should understand that it means something when Nigel Farage is on the stage with Donald Trump. It's part of a global movement. Viktor Orban and his party look much more like Trump and Trumpism than does a center-right European party to the Republican Party. In Poland, we see that gay people have been stripped of all of their human rights. And this is going to be a fight that plays out now over the next 20 years of American life. I don't know if any of you guys have read the book, How Democracies Die, by two political scientists. Yes. And they describe the ingredients of authoritarian regimes throughout history, criminalizing your opponents, which we've heard, lock them up and trying to criminalize Joe Biden now, attacking the media, destabilizing those institutions. But the ultimate ingredient that causes the breakdown in those democratic countries are not the behaviors of the authoritarian, it's when the gatekeepers fail. So the conversation that has to be had after this in the Republican Party is are the gatekeepers going to speak up? Are the Mitch McConnells of the world and any other Republicans going to actually speak up and play the role they need to speak to put a straitjacket around this president who has more than gravitated into the territory and the terrain of authoritarianism? Or are they going to keep laying down for fear that they're going to lose the next re-election? I think that's a great point, Joel. So I want to ask you, Matthew, because my view right now is the gatekeepers are Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch. It's the people who run the Epoch Times and Prager University. It's Laura Ingram. It's Sean Hannity. They seem to be the gatekeepers. So talk a little bit about that dynamic, because I don't think this is simply the folks running in 2022 for Senate races or the leaders saying, OK, we got a course correct, because ultimately my view is the entertainment wing of the Republican Party is going to double down. I hope I'm wrong about that. But what's your view on that? The fundamental problem today is Donald Trump figured out the Republican Party and who they were before all the other elected officials that had run in a Republican Party did. Mitch McConnell could say whatever he wants, but if you got 70 or 80 percent of the base Republican Party feeling one way about something, there's not much you can do but change 
the ecosystem by which they receive information and have conversations. And that to me is the fundamental problem or difficulty. There is an ecosystem of information that have created an entirely different reality for people. And I talk to a lot of Trump people. I live in a sort of semi-rural, outside a suburban place of Texas where there's a lot of Trump people. They have an entirely different view of what reality is of the rest of people in the country. That is a huge problem will continue with us. I'll give you all an example of what we're faced with on election night. There was a poll done this week, and it asked people voting for Biden and people voting for Trump who they thought was going to win. 95% of Trump supporters said Donald Trump's going to win the election. 70% of Trump supporters said he is going to win an electoral college landslide. 42% of Trump supporters said he was going to win a popular vote landslide. Think about that. The Biden's voters didn't think that. They thought he was going to win, but they were like, I don't know what's going to happen. I hope he wins. I think it's going to go okay. The Trump supporters are convinced by virtue of the information they receive what they think is going to happen. And when that doesn't happen, or if that doesn't happen, likely it doesn't happen, think about what they're going to feel like. Because they've been being told all along, this is reality. And so instead of accepting reality, my fear is they're going to assume that somebody did something, and that's why reality didn't come to pass like they thought it was. And so to me, Mitch McConnell and Marco Rubio and all of the others, they don't control the Republican Party. Fox News controls the Republican Party much more than any elected official. You know, Rupert Murdoch is the most dangerous immigrant who's ever come to American shores. He's done more damage than any immigrant that's ever come to this country. He's poisoned the polity of the country with nonstop bullshit over many, many years. And there's a multi-billion dollar industry around it. But in the end, it's not about people's feelings with regard to reality. There is, in fact, reality and then something else. Democratic societies just can't live on the lie. When you have 40% of the country that doesn't have $400 of cash available for an emergency, you can't be a successful society. There are a lot of things that we got to do as a country, from a Civil Rights Act to a Voting Rights Act to election, security acts, ethics reform, just to start making government function again. A restoration of competency around the great crisis that we're in the middle of. So... Let me take a page from originalist theory, if you will. I've been reading a lot of early American history during this time. The founders created an elite government because they believed the elites in their day, people with property, people with some money, would be disinterested and uncorruptible. Disinterestedness was a legitimate theory that the founders brought to the table in creating this system. Only what we have now is a class of political elites who instead of being disinterested, are consumed with self-interest about their re-elections and not about the country. They needed to be the gatekeepers. They needed to look outside their self-interest, not just a handful of them, not people like you, not just the Lincoln Project. They are the people with power and should have lived up to the originalist theory they all subscribe to when they're approving Supreme Court justices. But if the Republican Party will not stand up to an authoritarian leader on the brink of authoritarianism, 
if they can't be disinterested enough in their own reelection, that's a party that's in for serious trouble going forward. One thing to keep in mind is Donald Trump will get more votes this year than in 2016. Because if he loses by eight points in a 150 million plus election, he gets 65, 67 million votes. This is why Biden's role at this moment, if he wins, is so key. To me, he's going to have to give a speech on Inauguration Day very much akin to Lincoln's speech in 1865, where it's all about, you know, both malice towards non with charity at all, because there's going to be a whole segment of the Democrats who are like, they did this, so we're going to do this, and this is how it's going to be. And I think the first thing Biden has to do before he launches off in any big programmatic stuff or things he wants to fundamentally change, he's got to deal with the pandemic. And if he can settle this out and fundamentally calm this down, then he can basically take the next three steps. There may be an opportunity for Fox News, especially if Republicans lose Texas, Fox News may say, uh, this, we may have to adjust a little, may. It's going to take Joe Biden and everything he can summon to deal with the division that we're in. There's a fairly healthy argument in political science circles that there's no such thing as swing voters. Now, you just look at the last 14 years, 06 Democratic landslide, 8 Democratic landslide, 10 Republican landslide, 14 Republican landslide, 18 Democratic landslide. So speak a little (laughs) bit. We talked about, I mean, voters, it's not just one base turns out and the other doesn't. People are bouncing all around. What do you guys think the future holds there? Because it seems like so many Americans are dissatisfied with their economic conditions. Do you think we're still going to see a lot of flopping around amongst voters? I do believe there are swing voters. I think America is essentially a 50-50 country. That's one of the problems we have. We're divided right down the middle on which way some of these voters swing at any given moment based on real events. They're not just mercurial people who can't make up their minds. They're reacting to things in their lives that sometimes we can't foresee. Look, none of us would have seen a pandemic 12 months ago. None of us thought that would be the biggest thing hanging over an election. So I I do think there are legitimate swing voters who see some benefit, some reasonableness in both sides of the argument coming from the left, the right, the center. I don't think these are people who can't make up their minds. I think there are people who react to the experiences in their daily lives and how they translate those into our political atmosphere. Matthew Dowd and Joel Bennetson, thanks for joining us on Battleground. Great to be here. Thanks for having me and let's do it again sometime. Thank you both. I want to thank Matthew Dowd and Joel Bennetson for joining us today. They're obviously incredibly busy uh, at this time of year. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you like us, please give us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Ali Rogers is our associate producer. And Christian Castro-Lasell is our executive producer. <laughs>